let's dig in. We, uh, we are in Mark, and we're in chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. And if you don't, if you want to take out your phone, um, pull up the Uversion app, and uh, track with us. It's going to be on the screen as well, if you want. Um, but we're calling this series Walk With Me, because we're looking at these stories as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, and looking at these interactions that Jesus has with people and how he had disciples with him, how he called disciples, and how these scenarios or these, these situations that happen um, can teach us a lot about how to interact with one another and learn from Jesus how he models what it looks like to live this out. And so I'm calling this one Slow Down Cook More, um, and you'll find out in a little bit because we're going to talk about food at the end. Um, but at first, we're going to read this passage, and then I want to share a little story, a little thing I learned about um, Gandhi and then um, we'll dig into some, uh, some names uh, in this passage because you see that it's Matthew and Levi, depending on your translation and what you're reading right now. Um, there might be a moment where it's like Jesus calls Matthew, not Levi. And you'll be like, why is he swapping out names here? What's going on? So we'll talk about that. So um, let's dig in. Chapter 2, and we are in verse 13. So... Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Kind of a weird situation. Just instantly, he was like, hey, follow me. Goes with him instantly. Um that would have been something that was unique just to the fact that Jesus was a rabbi and um, there had to have been some kind of interaction, some kind of understanding that Levi had of who Jesus was that he was just like, okay, I'm in. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, so there's some details that are obviously left out, but it jumps straight forward to having dinner at Levi's house with Levi's buddies. So here's what happens. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so we have this, this beautiful interaction where Jesus just calls this guy Levi, um, Levi, which we're going to see in a second, is actually Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we'll unpack that a little bit, the meaning of names and what that's all about. But um, what we have here is this, this interaction between Jesus, the Pharisees, and a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, okay? And what that dynamic looks like and how the culture, the religious culture at that time, viewed what Jesus was doing. That he was hanging out with the people that you shouldn't hang out with, um, and he was investing in areas that that culture wouldn't have invested in, okay? Um, that's kind of the short story of it. But what we see here is Jesus is on mission. He never lets up being on mission. He's just like constantly, he's like, I'm not just going to hang out in the temple 24-7. I'm going to go and be with the people and bring this message that I'm, I've, that I'm called to bring, right? On behalf of the Father, right? He's like, I'm bringing in, ushering in the kingdom and recognizing it and pointing people to it. And what it reveals here is 
this idea of like who belongs in the kingdom of God. Because the Pharisees look on him and they're like, what's he doing? You're not supposed to hang out with those kind of people. Jesus goes straight to him, calls him, and then has meals with them, right? So who belongs in the kingdom of God? And what I want to do first off is um, kind of share the story that I, I stumbled on. I was just reading this article this week. Um, I put the link in your, the digital bulletins. If you want to read the whole thing, you're welcome to. Um, but um, it comes out of this quote that you're probably familiar with that I've actually used in a sermon before and learned some new things about. Um, you've maybe heard this quote that says, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Maybe you've heard that before? Okay, so if you do some digging, you discover that's not really, it's, it's a Gandhi quote that's been condensed down into just a very brief like meme kind of thing, right? We like memes, we like short, abbreviated, like under 140 characters kind of stuff. Um, and, um, and so in this article that I was reading, they unpack the fact that it, that's not exactly what Gandhi says. If you do some research, you find out. Um, but the guy who actually had a conversation with Gandhi is a Methodist preacher, okay? Um, and I'm going to give you some background on him because I believe that this story and this interaction and what Gandhi actually said ties in beautifully with what Jesus is doing, okay? So, um, the, so this this article that was kind of pointing out this, this quote and how I was misquoted, um, it basically, um, it's, it was a conversation between E. Stanley Jones, who was kind of considered like the Billy Graham of, he was like, from, he was born in 1884, lived to 1973, um, but he's this, I just saw something run by there, sorry. <laughs> it's totally distracted. Um, I don't know what that was, but be on your toes over there. Um, moving right along, now that I just distracted all of you. Um, but no, this guy was, uh, he was a missionary to India, and um, he's a theologian, he was an author, he wrote this, um, this book that, uh, what was it called? Um, the Christ of the Indian Road, and it sold more than a million copies worldwide, um, and then three million copies after he passed away, so it's like he's, it's obviously had an impact. Um, but he's the founder of this Christian ashram movement, which basically is, it's a, a, basically a temple where you go and study and you can go and meditate. And what he did is he wove in this idea of like, let's bring Christ into a culture that may not be okay with it in a way that they would be okay with it. So he's a missionary basically. And he said, let's, let's create these temples. Let's create these spaces where people can encounter Christ. And, um, and so he ha- sat down with Gandhi and had this conversation about, like, how do I bring the gospel to India? How do I effectively begin to share this with this culture? And Gandhi is a guy who actually read, it says, uh, he read the Sermon on the Mount daily. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, but never actually committed to fully being a Christian, but read the Sermon on the Mount daily. And I was like, I can't attest to reading the Sermon on the Mount daily, right? Like, so he's... He's definitely interested. He's definitely digging into this and sees some value in it. And, um, and so when this guy, E. Stanley Jones, sat down with him and just asked him, like, how can we effectively like, begin to reach people? Here's how Gandhi responded. He said, I would suggest, first of all, that all of you Christians, missionaries and all, begin to live more like Jesus Christ. Right? So you can see where that quote started to come from, like where they're condensing it down. 
Second, he says, I would suggest that you must practice your religion without adulterating or toning it down. Right? So he says, don't tone it down. I was like, oh, what are the ways that we tone down our Christianity? What are the ways that we begin to tone it down? And you think about the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of stuff in there that we tone down. And we're like, really? Turn the other cheek? Like, love people unconditionally? It's difficult. And he says, third, I would suggest that you must put your emphasis upon love, for love is the center and soul of Christianity. I was like, oh, wow. There's, again, the Sermon on the Mount played out over and over in, like, what he's talking about. So you could see how he was like, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians, where he's basically like, Live out what Jesus called you guys to do, and you'll be effective. I was like, oh, that hurts coming from somebody who's like on the outside looking in, that sees the quality and beauty of who Jesus is and what he's doing, and the effectiveness that it could have if you actually like dig into it fully and live into it. And what we see Jesus do here is he calls Levi into this relationship and says, follow me, like learn my teachings, learn this way of loving people. Um, this way of beginning to interact with people that is really, really good, that is life-giving. And then he models it, and he sits with him. And not only does he sit with Levi and have a meal, but he sits with all of Levi's buddies. And so it says there's a, a bunch of his friends, enough to where it was noticeable, to where the Pharisees are like, why are all these people flocking and why, to Jesus, and why are they all hanging out with, why is Jesus hanging out with them? Like, they don't deserve this kind of attention. And so I think today's passage, like what we just read there, um, I think what Mark does is he reveals what happens when someone really takes Jesus seriously and begins to uh, have this heart of Jesus. Because you see Levi immediately begin to go from, hey, this is a great message, like I want to be part of this, to inviting all of his friends over for a meal to hear about it, right? And so let's unpack a little bit more of like, this name. So we look at Levi, and it's actually Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And when you see Mark writing his Gospel, for him to use the word Levi would have had significance, and here's why. Levi comes from um, the, there's 12 tribes when you look, read the Old Testament. If you want to dig into that, I would encourage you just to Google it and start to look into the 12 tribes in the Old Testament and what that looks like to be the Israelites. But each tribe had their own their own job. And Levi would have come from the Levites, right? And the Levites were like the lead worshipers. Levites were the ones who set up the temple. They took care of the temple. They were the ones who set up worship, offering, all that kind of stuff. Everything about encountering God was done through Levites. And so Levi, who's a tax collector, this would have been a very ironic name. So a tax collector was somebody who sold out to Herod in Rome and basically said, on behalf of my Jewish people, I'm going to collect taxes for Rome, right? So basically, he's, his job is to go for Rome, collect money from people, and take a commission off the top of that for his own finances um, so that he could survive and that would cover his job. But what would happen is tax collectors would take even more than they should. Instead of taking 10%, they'd take 50%. And so they would be rich beyond belief because of their, their selfishness, basically. And so people hated them because they were just, they were appealing tons of money from the, their community, their people. It was like if I just started robbing all you guys as family, right? And it was like, I'm taking more for myself. Sadly, there's pastors that have done that, right? So 
kind of hits a little too close to home. But um, So what he does is he turns his back on his people, works for Rome, becomes kind of the evil guy, and the tribe, the Levites, they lived off of the finances of the other 11 tribes, right? So the lead worshipers, the people that are in there running the temple, they basically made their finances from the other 12 tribes being generous and giving to them. So Levi switches from being someone who receives from the community, connected to the community, deeply connected to the community financially, to now robbing the community. So when Mark uses this word, this name Levi, the readers would have been like, wait, that was Matthew? Matthew was that jacked up dude in our community that was robbing all of us? And now he's the one like hanging out with Jesus? That's crazy. So it would have been like this example of transformation that no community had ever heard of or seen, right? Because for him to go from being like centered around God and being part of a community that centers around worshiping God and helping others center around worshiping God to now stealing from them would have been like the biggest backstabbing situation. And that's why like maybe you've heard this kind of analogy of like tax collectors, why they're hated so much. But like this just brings it even more like to home and clarity, right? Of like he moved from Levi to now Matthew. And Matthew... When he meets Jesus, um, his name switches. And a lot of the disciples had this happen. Um, but his name switches, and it's this Greek word, methedes, which would have been disciple. So now he goes from ruining his community, um, stealing from them, and working for the enemy, basically, um, the oppressor at that time, because Rome was definitely oppressing people. There's no fans or butts about that. Like it was like they oppressed people and they oppressed the Jewish culture big time. So for him to now go from this, this guy who was a Levite robbing, turning his back on his community, now turns into disciple, follower of Jesus, and now is sharing this with his community. And so this transformation would have been massive. Um, moves from Levi the tax collector and sinner and backstabber, traitor, fill in whatever word you want in, to now Matthew, transformed disciple who's following Jesus and making life about him. And so this word disciple, so him being a disciple and his name reflecting disciple, um, has deep meaning. And here's why. In verse 15, we see while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. So as a disciple, he immediately went from ruining his community, robbing his community, to now being generous and giving back to his community. And not just his community, he's going to the tax collectors, the other people who are robbing his community and have probably turned their backs on the community, and saying, let me show you this new way of life. Like, we've been doing it wrong. Let me teach you about Jesus. So he didn't wait at all in being discipled. And I think in our mind, we think, I can't teach a Bible study. I can't invite people to Jesus until I've been discipled. What we see modeled here is Jesus instantly takes him from sitting in a tax collector's booth, robbing people, to now eating with all of them and saying, you guys need to discover Jesus. You guys need to hear about Jesus. Like, there is no gap in between there that we know of, right? There might have been a little bit. But really, he doesn't spend any time like getting fully discipled. He's just like, he knows that Jesus is the real deal. And he's like, you guys all need to discover this. 
And so <clears throat> what I learned there is that as a disciple, we are called, once we're transformed, we are called to now reach out to other people that are in our circles, that we relate to, that we connect to. And I see it happening. I go look around the room and I see some of you who like invest in like the skate community, um, just like music, whatever. It's like all these different ways that we begin to reach out to people that we know that we've built relationship with and now have this opportunity to reflect this transformation that's taken place in our lives. And so he goes immediately to the stage of witnessing and sharing his faith. He doesn't hesitate at all. There's no gap in between there. Um, and, and instantly starts living out what it means to be this disciple. Question for you. How does Levi love his friends? How does he begin loving his friends? He instantly goes and has a meal with them. And that's what I want to point out is like the very simple fact that food is the thing. That's why I called this slow down cook more. I'm going to talk about it a little more in a second. Um, but food began to reflect who belongs in the kingdom. So I asked that question at the very beginning. Who belongs in the kingdom? Jesus reflects it by who he eats with, right? The Pharisees are like, you don't eat with those people. In that culture, you ate with people that you know are either family or are in the same tribe as you, so to speak, right? That believe the same things as you, that are on board with your faith, your belief, your structure system. Those are the people, the most intimate people, those are the people you eat with. Everybody else stays outside. What Jesus does is he flips that and he says, I'm not just going to eat with the people that I'm super familiar with. I'm going to eat with strangers and not just strangers, but people that this culture says are outcasts. I'm going to eat with people that this culture says you shouldn't be eating with. And what Levi does is he says, let's have a meal. And I think there's something to be learned in the fact that Jesus sits and eats with sinners and tax collectors. There's something to be learned in that. Like, it, it seems very simple, but I believe that food has this way of transforming relationships. And you guys all know that, right? Like, when you sit and eat with people, what happens? You get to know them. You start to have a conversation about real life, right? Um, I threw a mug on a table in the, backs, whatever the, the backdrop of my slides because of how many conversations I've had sitting around drinking coffee with people where God has entered in and done something amazing. Um, my table in my house, and maybe you can relate, has had many conversations where we've sat around our back table in my backyard um, that's massive, and it's massive for a reason because we wanted to like, have people be able to gather around it. Um, because there's something when you sit and have a cup of coffee, when you have a meal, when you eat, there's something really, really good about that. And there's something that invites the Holy Spirit into that. And I don't want to say that food is more sacred than anything else, but I want to say that when you sit and eat with people, there's something really good. And we see that in the Gospels over and over where Jesus sits with people that you wouldn't think he should be sitting with or that the culture says he shouldn't be sitting with and shares this meal with them. And there's something really powerful that happens in the middle of that because there's this transformation that takes place. So who belongs in the kingdom of God? Jesus models it for us, everyone. There's nobody that, you, that should be outside of that. Uh, Mark wants us to see that Jesus always sees a restoration opportunity in every relationship. And 
That's one of the things that, um, that I think we can improve on, that I know that I can continually be uh, improving on, is who's welcome at the table. When you sit at the table, who's welcome at it? Um, I believe that everybody should be. And what Jesus understood and what he models is that renovation can happen, that a heart can be renovated. Levi's life was renovated, right? That's why he used the word Levi specifically, because he knows that there can be a change that takes place. And I think if we believe that there can be a change that takes place, then that's going to change who sits at our table, that we'll allow anybody at the table. There's a seat for you. Come, pull up a chair. We got extra pizza. Dig in, right? And, and I think that mindset of renovation has to exist. Um, it it can be difficult. I know just thinking like materially, like I think when uh, Katie and I first bought our house 14 years ago, we looked at the house and it was a dump. Like a lot of people didn't put any bids in it because it was so trashed. And we were like, no, I see potential in this. We can renovate this. Like we could put new drywall. We can put new, all this stuff. Like we can change all that. It might take us a really, really long time. And 14 years later, we're now just kind of starting to finish that process. But I think if you have a vision for renovation, if you have a vision for like seeing something that maybe is broken, that it can be repaired, that it can be restored, beautiful things can happen. Um, I know that, um, right, like shows about renovation are popular. It's like, it's why, we, it's just woven into us. We love that. It's all over HGTV, right? Like, and you just see it continually and you're like, you saw something just that looked like trash turn into something beautiful. Something that looked like impossible to recover now is like beautiful and amazing. And, um, and I believe that that same mindset we can have for people, that we should have for people, that Jesus models that we should have for people. Um, he says at the very end, he says, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he says it very, blank, uh, very blunt, but he basically says, like, those who are disconnected from God, that are feel broken, that feel like there's no hope, he says, I believe that, that we can come and bring in this new life. I can, he's going to be the doctor in that situation. He's going to bring healing, restoration. And I believe that we need to have that same mindset. Um, and so the question that, I, that I've been challenged with is, are there people you have been neglecting because of their reputation the reputation is what got him in trouble, right? And are there people that we think have a reputation that may make you look bad for hanging out with them, for inviting them to the table? Who would that be? I can't answer that for you. We all have to answer that individually because we all have a bias that says only these people can be at the table. These people, they can't be at the table because I'm, they might think I'm an alcoholic if I sit with them. They might think I'm, you know, whatever. What Fill in your blank. Who are the people that we neglect to invite to the table? Um, that's a heavy question. That's a challenge. Um, the culture at that time was all about eating with your crew only. And, uh, and I hope that we can expand that, that meals can be this powerful place where the Holy Spirit works and does beautiful things. Um, Jesus broke those common cultural boundaries and said, we are all welcome. Um, I had a conversation this week with someone who's anonymous. I'm not going to share it, but they'll know who I'm talking about. Um, 
about how cultures around the world really value times of sitting and eating together. Our culture, I would say American culture or Western culture, we broaden that out a little bit more. Um, not so much, right? Like we don't value meal times. I'm not saying you don't. Some of you, I know you definitely do. But I, I think what's happened in our culture is that meals have become something that isn't so much a social or communal time. It's a way of filling our stomach, right? Um, American culture, like we've been, in, it's in, just been ingrained in us that we're about performance in everything, right? Like it's why we have smoothies, right? If I can get the optimal amount of nutrients into a cup so that I can get back to work, that's performance. Then I can do things best, right? I was thinking about a smoothie. I'm like, it's got all of it in it, and I can just drink it and go and get right to work. Whereas like other cultures are like, no, let's sit down and eat all those ingredients and enjoy time together, right? Um, is that the industrial revolution? Like, is that the impact that it's had? Um, more productivity, more efficiency. Did I mention productivity and efficiency? Um, industrial revolution, it's all about we have stuff to do. People can't get in the way. Um, that's sad. And I feel like a mealtime is reflective of kind of our heart and our culture, right? Um, and this person that I was talking to pointed out that in Filipino culture, if you sit and have a meal with somebody, you are spending time investing in them, you're getting to know them, and that that is valuable. And that if you just sat down and were like scarfing down a burrito and you're like, see you later, hope you have a great day, they would be offended. And I'm like, oh, that, that's good, right? Like, that's good in that like we need to learn how to sit and have a meal with people and not just scarf down food and leave. Like, we need to learn how to get to know each other. Um, my brother started a website called Slow Down Cook More. That's why I called a sermon this. But he started that because... He saw this thing that I'm talking about, a culture that says, we're just about efficiency. Let's get the smoothie. Let's get it done so we can get back to work and do more stuff and be productive. And he was like, we need to slow down. We need to eat food that we know where it came from, recognize that it can be healthy, recognize what we are putting in our bodies. And then in that process of slowing down, we're going to get to know people, that relationships are going to get deepened, that our culture of being a people who love one another is going to get deepened, right? So, um, so he said, I'm just going to start posting recipes, ways to simplify like your cooking so that you can like see how easy it is to cook something and eat with people that you don't have to make it fast food. I'm all about fast food. I like it sometimes, but fast food isn't the best food because then it's just like what it says about our relationships is that those need to be fast as well. Slow down and cook more says slow down, recognize the people you're with, and enjoy that time, right? Some of my best times as a family are when I'm cooking with my girls. Sometimes they drop eggs and I lose it, and I'm like, why are you doing that? Clean up the mess. But in general, it's like we get to start talking, and we talk about more than just the food we're cooking. And it's beautiful because there's something that happens that I believe that God uses the same way that Jesus sat and had meal with sinners, tax collectors, outcasts of that community, that spoke to a culture that said, you can't do that. And Jesus said, no, I can. And watch what happens. And a, and a life was transformed. And who knows how many other tax collectors and sinners that were sitting there were transformed as a result of that meal. So the meal is powerful. It's, it's huge. Um, 
Jesus made intentional time to be with people. And so I would just say, like, who do you intentionally need to make time to eat with, to be with this week? Not next week, not next year, this week, maybe even today. I don't know. Uh, We have a staff meeting after church, and we're going to sit around uh, our pizza oven and make some pizzas and talk about some stuff. But um, mealtimes, they're crucial. It's why we leave for lunch after church a lot of times, and we all just, whoever can make it, go and have a meal together. We just said that's valuable. It's why when we have a fifth Sunday, we're like, we're just going to have a meal together here at church. Um, because we value the fact that a meal can transform a, li- a relationship. It can transform a life. So when Gandhi spoke about this wisdom of what it means to be the kind of community, the kind of people that can be missionaries, that can reach a community effectively, um, I think he was on point that begin to live more like Jesus. We have to live into these practices that Jesus models. And I know that this seems like just like a really like church said to like have a meal with people? How spiritual is that? Like, give me some more tangible. No, I'm not going to give you any more tangible, like, things other than Jesus did this stuff. Like, he sat and had a meal with people. Let's do that, right? Let's start with that and begin to see what happens. Um, and he says, I would suggest that you put your emphasis upon love. And I think that when we do that, if we put our emphasis on love, people will see that the Jesus that we follow is loving, is going to transform life, and we, as you sit and have a meal with somebody, those stories are going to bubble out and people are going to see that and they're going to go, oh yeah, that's, that's what I want to be a part of. And so um, slow down, cook more, find time to cook something with somebody or go and grab something with somebody, but slow down, have a meal with somebody and begin to hear about their story. And that's kind of my, my homework for us all this week is like sit and have a meal with somebody. Um, don't try and make it fast. Don't try and make it efficient to get back to work. Like sit and have a meal and see what happens. And so... That's what you got to do before we meet next Sunday. There's no, there's no getting off the hook. You got to have a meal with somebody, all right? Um, no pressure if you don't do it, okay? But we will call you out. Just kidding. Um, no, let's, let's be those kind of people. Let's do it. Let's live into it. So um, let's learn from Jesus. He models it. So let's rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone. Let's know the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us when we're sitting and having a meal with people, that he's guiding and protecting our conversation and our time together. Um, and let's share this comfort with one another and feel his presence each moment of each day. And hopefully it's over a burrito or some kind of meal this week. So um, grace and peace as you live into this. I want to feel you in the break. I want to know you when it's hard to find my faith. I want to find you in the search. Want to be with you, don't you ever look away. When the night is dark, feel so long when I'm sinking under